The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V, and he also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Not too bad, Father. It's good, good to, to see you. Here. Yes. Happy New Year to you, Father. Well, I wish you the same. And all of our viewers, too. Blessed Christmas season, which lasts until February 2nd. And uh, blessed coming year, too, 2023, right. year of our Lord. That's right. Father, any um, prayer requests before we begin the show today? Well, always, Tom. We have the Immaculate Heart of Mary prayer request list, and there are literally hundreds, if not thousands of people on the list asking our prayers because they know we pray. Um, and just today I received um, at least half a dozen requests for prayers, uh, urgently, urgent prayers, um, three of them from the Cleveland area, uh, for those who are gravely ill. Um, also received a request for uh, one of our dear viewers, 101-year-old mother who fell recently, and uh, I guess within the last two weeks, and uh, her health is, uh, well, really declining since then. So uh, please keep her in her prayers, in, in, in your prayers. Um, the, uh, her name is Violet, Violet Rose. And also we have, uh, some little children to pray for, Blaze and siblings and, and others, um, uh, please continue prayers for Joe Percher and, uh, for Leo Schopacher and uh, others, uh, who've been injured. Uh, so, uh, yes, there are many requests. Uh, of course, you know, I do ask people to, Pray for the repose of the soul of Joseph Rothsinger, known to the world as Benedict XVI. Uh, he was one of the Novus Ordo pontiffs, as you know. And um, he died uh, just, uh, just, well, December 31st of 2022. So uh, a lot, lot of responsibility, a lot, lot to answer for. Right? So I ask you to... Pray for his the repose of his soul too. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Father. We had um, a couple uh, different things that we wanted to talk about tonight, but Benedict, um, of course, being one of them, his his passing. Some reflections on that. Um, we also wanted to talk about this uh, so-called good club, the good club uh, mm -hmm. meeting that uh, that took place some time ago. We can uh, fill our viewers in on that. Um, and a couple other news articles that uh, that caught our attention, Father, in regards to. Uh, some current billionaires who are uh, seeking cures for aging, um, something along that, that line, and also another um, uh, recent um, measure that, that passed in the state of New York regarding human composting, something else we wanted to touch on. So a couple of things like that, but I, I thought, Father, we could start with um, with Benedict XVI and, and his his passing, um, you know, certainly um, been 
all, all over the news, all, all over the world. Um, recently, there's there's been a lot of a lot of talk about that, a lot of reflections. But we wanted to get a real <coughs> traditional Catholic perspective on that, and and what what uh, you thought of his legacy, Benedict the Sixteenth, and his legacy. Um, there were there were a couple of, um, articles that I uh, I thought might might be worth mentioning. One from the uh, the Wall Street Journal that uh, that said Pope Benedict's passing means conservative Catholics lose their leading light. Uh, there was a something similar from the, the New York Times which uh, said that Benedict's death leaves Catholic conservatives bereft. Uh, they referred to Benedict as the preeminent conservative thinker and leader in the Catholic Church. So, Father, um, as a uh, traditional Catholic, what uh, what what kind of legacy do you think Benedict the Sixteenth left? Is it true that that he was a this kind of great guiding light for conservative Catholics? Is there any truth to that? No, there's no truth to it whatsoever. Um, Benedict was not as radical as Francis, uh, and even even Benedict himself, when he was uh, you know uh, before he was elected. Uh, the Supreme Pontiff of the Novus Ordo in the year 2005, e even he uh, responded to a question about how, why he could be considered conservative, answered that, well, at the time of Vatican II, he was considered quite radical. It's just that everything had become much more liberal or more radical in the meantime than he was. And so that they kind of, the modernists kind of passed him by. He had become, in a sense, kind of passé. And relatively conservative, but uh, you know we have to remember the facts of the matter. Uh, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, as a as a, a priest and uh, again a, a a modernist bishop and a modernist cardinal, uh, was one of the leaders of Vatican II. I mean, he was one of the uh, radicals at Vatican II with Karl Rahner and. Uh, and and Herring and the rest of them, uh, who were pushing for uh, you know, well, changes. They were change agents. They were modernists. And um, you know, he himself expressed wonderment at how radical, how liberal and modernist things had become, and and basically passed him by. You know, he he when he was chosen as the supreme pontiff of the Novus Ordo uh, back in two thousand five. He actually asked for prayers that he would not succumb to the wolves, <clears throat> right? Which was kind of an interesting statement at the time. And less than eight years later, he resigned. Um, and the statements he made then, he resigned on February 28th in the year, what, 2013, and uh, set the stage for the choice of Francis as his successor. Jorge Bergoglio, <coughs> and um, who was chosen in March, in the next month. Um, and uh, of course, the rest is history. We see we see what Francis has brought into the Novus Ordo and made of it. But um, in, a, in a little less than eight years. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Benedict uh, amassed quite a right, quite a reputation. Um, he made some statements that would be considered relatively very conservative today. I mean, he was responsible for the motu proprio sumorum pontificum, 
which expanded the availability of using the the old right, as they call it, right? Um, and um, as the extraordinary form. Um, but uh, he was still very much of the Novus Ordo. Um, he wasn't as much hostile and as much an enemy of Catholic tradition as Francis was. Um, there are degrees of modernism, okay? Uh, uh, we can explain that some other time, but, you know, it's not as though one is a modernist lock, stock, and barrel, or not a modernist at all. Uh, there are those who adhere to modernist principles, and yet they haven't necessarily drawn all of the modernist conclusions yet. Uh, an example of that would have been Jacques Maritain, the philosopher friend of, uh, of Paul VI. Um, he was a modernist in his thinking. He, he acknowledges that. He, was, he welcomed Vatican II. He was enthusiastic about Vatican II. But he obviously hadn't really thought it through because when he saw the results of Vatican II, he, he drew back. In his last book, The Peasant of the Garonne, uh, expresses um, concerns and um, uh, questions the modernist um, platform. He's the consequence of it. There were many uh, priests back at Vatican II who were enthusiastic about the idea and the promises that were made, and they found the ideas kind of energizing, modernist ideas, but when they saw the consequences of these ideas, they saw that they were poison. They were poisonous to the faith. And uh, they retreated from them. And of those, there are not a few who actually returned to Catholic tradition and rejected modernism entirely, despite their initial, initially being enamored of, of it because of its, the promises of it, the glitziness of it, as it were. Um, and so we can say of, uh, of Joseph Rodzinger that he, he might not have seen the ultimate consequences of modernism as clearly. And when he did see them, he was kind of befuddled by it. He still adhered firmly to the principles of modernism. I don't know that he ever retreated from any of, the, any of them. But he, he himself was lamenting that Vatican II just didn't work out the way that they'd expected it wasn't the great springtime of the church, as they predicted. Almost as though he was kind of bewildered that uh, <clears throat> it didn't work out, that the theory of it didn't work out quite as, <clears throat> as they had planned. So was Rotsinger one of those who wanted to set out to destroy the church? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, there are others who may have been uh, motivated by Masonic, Masonic animosity toward the church, wanting to crush it. Uh, but Ratzinger, you know, toward the end, seemed to be genuinely uh, puzzled about how things had actually played out and didn't know quite what to do about it. So I don't know that he started out with that ill, Ill intention of, um, of destroying the church, as we might see in Francis, um, destroying the traditional Catholic Church entirely. Uh, but I, I'm interpreting, only interpreting, I don't know, there are many who would disagree with me on that, vehemently, I'm sure. But uh, Ratzinger just seems to have been uh, 
disappointed, shall we say, with the application of what he brought in. You know, it's like almost midwifing this thing at Vatican II and then having it grow up and it, there's no really, you know, you wonder where did this thing come from, you know. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, he was a radical. He did take part in pagan worship. If Francis brought a Pachamama into worship in, in, the, in the churches of Rome, yes, uh, Ratzinger paved the way for him. John Paul II paved the way for him. I mean, they all, they all uh, let's say, had their role in this multi multiculturalism. They all had their role to play. Uh, you know, when, when uh, Ratzinger presided over the funeral of John Paul II, wasn't it Ratzinger who gave communion to the head of Teze, the, the, the Protestant leader of the Teze community, on national te international television? He gives him holy communion with everyone else. Um, I mean, this again, these, these things are typical modernist... Uh, uh, you know, attacks on the traditional Catholic faith. There's no doubt about it. Uh, and that made, drew, drew wonderment, you know. Is, 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 uh, he's supposed to be very conservative. He was the head of the Catholic doctrine, the uh, Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, you know. He was made that by John Paul II. And um, even there, th there was kind of a tension. Uh, Maciel, uh, Father Maciel, who was held up as a great example, you know, of church dynamism and all the rest. But he was being, while he was being um, praised and honored by John Paul II, he was being investigated by Ratzinger for all kinds of terrible crimes, great immorality. And uh, actually, uh, Sodano, who was the... the, uh, the uh, I think he was at that time the uh, Apostolic Nuncio of the United States, and later on, I think Secretary of State. No, no, no. Getting it mixed up somewhere. But anyway, uh, Sedano actually prevented uh, Ratzinger from investigating Maciel. And uh, John Paul II even uh, publicly praised and commended Maciel. And uh, Ratzinger uncovered the fact that he was engaged in very immoral acts here in the United States of America, and um, that he was not someone to be emulated. So, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of an, a very ambivalent situation that you have um, um, Ratzinger uncovering the immorality of this one priest um, who um, actually was the founder of the Legionnaires of Christ, um, very famous here in America for being relatively conservative among the Navasoro groups. And uh, yet their founder was in, engaged in all kinds of immoral acts for a long time. Uh, Ratzinger uncovered that, but at the same time, Ratzinger was being accused of not doing enough against the abusive clergy uh, throughout the world. And... Um, he did laicize many of his own clergy. Um, you know, there, there are those who say that he was actually very much involved in the, in the corruption. 
And he may well have been. I have the impression, though, that when one takes a closer look at what was going on and his reaction to what was going on, I think to some extent he was probably demoralized at what was happening and, uh, and disenchanted somewhat and um, bewildered by it all. There are those who say he resigned because he was being threatened with exposure for his part in the corruption. There are those who say he resigned because he was beaten down by the homosexual mafia. So you get these, from one extreme to another, people speculating about what it was. And then there are those who say he really didn't resign at all. Um, and, uh, you know, they say that uh, because Francis... Well, there are those who say he resigned from part of the papacy, but not all of the papacy, right? And they drew the distinction between, what was it, uh, uh, the ministerium and the magisterium, or something like that, saying he kept one and, and uh, resigned from the other, as if it was possible. And uh, <laughs> then there are others say that he resigned from the entire papacy of the new order, uh, others say he never effectively resigned. One of those is a, a woman named Barnhart, who runs a, a web, website, a blog site, I guess, with a, lot of, a substantial following, I guess, <clears throat> saying that he never effectively designed, resigned, that Francis, therefore, could not have been elected, so Francis is definitely not a pope, even of the Novus Ordo, right, let alone of the Catholic Church, and uh, that uh, Benedict remained until the moment he died the true supreme pontiff of the Novus Ordo. And uh, <clears throat> these became known as the Bene Vacantis as opposed to Sede Vacantis because they say, well, well, it's kind of nonsense, but they believe that Benedict was the surviving uh, pontiff of the Novus Ordo and Francis was a, a, myth, a myth, you know, a figurehead. And, um, of course, we saw that this was going nowhere. Um, I think this, uh, what is her first name? Barnhart. Anne. Anne, Anne Barnhart. Barnhart yeah. uh, was very much carrying the torch for this and convincing people about it. And uh, that Benedict really was still the Supreme Pontiff of the Novus Ordo. She didn't call him that, but that's, in fact, what he was, the Supreme Pontiff of the Novus Ordo. And, um, but, you know, we saw that this was really not going to end well. I think recently she came out and said that uh, the Sede Vacantis and the Francis party, both those who upheld the, the true papacy of, the, of Francis and those who denied it, the Sede Vacantis, were both almost taunting uh, her and the Bene Vacantis when when. Uh, when Benedict died. Um, is it true? I don't know. I mean, very possibly. Because there are those who are so shallow-minded, they would almost react with a certain glee and even a certain, um, what, what should we say? Um, uh, she said that they were spiteful and spiteful mocking. Spiteful and mocking, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, when Benedict died, I can't imagine, though, the shallowness of somebody 
spitefully, mockingly say, well, you see, what has become of your position now? It's just sad. I mean, we see the church suffering because of this whole thing, and people um, really grasping at straws, but they're not straws, they're bricks, you know, uh, to stay afloat. And that's a very, very sad and tragic thing. Um, I mean, I can't imagine anyone gloating over that uh, as though someone taunting them for having this position. Because, you know, what has it led them to? Now, <clears throat> they say that Francis is not the their pontiff even of the new order. Benedict was, but now he's dead, so where does that leave them, right? In a sense, they painted themselves into a corner <clears throat> after railing against sedevacantism for all this time, then insisting that Benedict was a true pontiff, but obviously he was approaching death rather rapidly. And at the age of 95, he finally did just pass away. And so what have they got? Where do they go from here? I mean, Francis has appointed so many of their New Order cardinals who are going to be electing their New Order pontiff again, uh, very much in the mold of Francis, or even beyond Francis in modernism. Um, where does this, this leave them? And I think it's all just a matter of trying to dance around the, 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 real, the, the real issue, okay? I think they're just trying to avoid facing the real issue. Uh, it comes down to the real issue of what the modernists have done to the church and what they are doing now through Francis to any vestige of the papacy, how they're corrupting the faith of even the conservative New Order Catholic people uh, who are adjusting their whole concept of the papacy itself to fit Francis. They feel they, they have no choice. Uh, they're railroaded into that. We know that's a mistake, a very serious mistake, but in fact, the modernists are counting on that. The conservative New Order Catholics, many of them still have the faith, but they don't know what to do about it because they feel trapped in the Novus Ordo because of Francis. And they feel obliged to somehow <clears throat> continually adjust their believing, their belief in the papacy to include Francis no matter what he does. And their faith is being undermined and, well, ultimately, I fear, destroyed by the modernists. Even at the same time, these same people are, are not happy with the, what the modernists are doing, and they're lamenting it, but they're, they're actually going along with them. And they're letting the modernists basically dictate to them their, what they believe about the papacy, and that, that belief is being destroyed. So, um, you know, our, our message is, look, just go back, practice the traditional Catholic faith in its entirety, the Mass, the sacraments, the traditional Catholic faith, the traditional Catholic sacraments as they were practiced before Vatican II. Hold on to that for dear life, and you will be Catholic. Don't follow the modernists. Don't let them call the tune, because uh, the tune will go from Holy God, we praise thy name, to Kumbaya. You know, inevitably, it will lead that way. Um, or Holy Pachamama, or wherever they're going to take him. Um, so anyway, there's a lot that could be said about the uh, the tenure of uh, Joseph Ratzinger as uh, Benedict XVI in those uh, little less than eight years. There's a, there's an article 
um, on LifeSite News, which is, I think, very revealing. It doesn't um, take a firm stance, as I would personally take about the whole thing. But um, I think it is revealing in showing that um, Benedict XVI, Joseph Ratzinger, was not the great traditionalist or conservative that his admirers now want to make him out to be. Um, but that he was a modernist and that many of the things even that uh, <clears throat> some of his um, boosters are trying to make of him are not true, but the opposite is the truth. Uh, his writings are not conservative, okay? They have serious flaws in them, okay? Um, he, even though he made concessions, you might say, to tradition or traditional practices, that was an exception in his mind. But the real faith of Joseph Ratzinger was Vatican II. Um... As I say, I think it was his somewhat disappointment with Vatican II, or at least perhaps not knowing how to carry it out, that led to his resignation and the accession of Francis as the Supreme Pontiff of the Novus Ordo, because Francis was the man they thought could actually finish Vatican II and bring it to completion. Benedict was not doing that for whatever reason. So anyway, that's my own take on it. Mm -hmm. Father, how, how poorly does this speak of the Novus Ordo that, um, you know, there are so many um, good-minded people, traditional-minded Catholics in, in the Novus Ordo who um, this and Benedict XVI, this, this is the, the best they have to, to look up to. This is their, you know, as the article said, I think there's a lot of good traditional-minded Catholics who did look to Benedict as kind of the guiding light, the great, you know, conservative but it seems there's no real idea of, of true sanctity or holiness anymore. Instead, we're just left with um, something like this. Who, at best, you know, you could you could say something like like uh, like the word conservative. But um, I, I don't know there. What what? Well, he's going to be can canonized by Francis right away, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. It's on uh, the waiting uh, list. As, as Benedict himself, you know, waived the five-year waiting period after John Paul II died. <clears throat> you know, Benedict wanted to start the process for beatification and, and, and canonization of, of John Paul II right away. Uh, the modernists want to canonize each other because they want to canonize modernism. Yeah. Um, you know, we have the admirers of Benedict, <clears throat> I mean, even critics of his, because they considered him to be uh, not as radical as they, um, theologically, um, but even the critics, they're, they're talking about him as very a nice, gentle, kind man. And he might have been a very nice, gentle, kind man. But that doesn't make one a saint in the eyes of the Catholic Church. Um, the, the, the heroic sanctity is a supernatural uh, phenomenon, you may call it, uh, and is endorsed by Almighty God through through... Well, it used to be by four absolutely undeniable miracles and uh, a, a long, hard look at a person's life. 
um, to see if, if everything was in accord with the faith, because they would not want to hold up anybody as an example of sanctity who, you know, had some serious character flaws. Um, it's, it's now generally conceded, actually, <clears throat> that the man that Benedict XVI chose to be his secretary uh, was an active homosexual, was an active practicing homosexual. And um, as I say, I mean, this is not even disputed anymore, as far as I know, um, which shows, uh, well, you know, it's hard to imagine that Rome, the, Rome itself would know this, and yet he would not, that Benedict would not have known this, um, if, if he, except for some enormous naivete, which he, he was not, I don't think. He saw Mas, right through Marcel. Um So, um, you know, there, there are red flags, certainly. Um, so, uh, you know, I, 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 he has an enormous responsibility. You know, as Catholics, we want souls to be saved, and we certainly pray for him. But there were hundreds of millions of Catholic people around the world who were looking to him as the paragon of faith for them, and to lead the way for faith. And um, certainly the legacy that he left them was, was not that. You know, it was, it was modernism. <clears throat> there, are, there are times when, you know, people could cheer him on. For example, when he quoted one of the Byzantine emperors talking about Mohammed, uh, asking what kind of a legacy did Mohammed leave, but, you know... Uh, Slaughter, violence, you know, and, and debauchery, and so on. And the Muslim world rose up, rose up against Fran, uh, Benedict, and even, you know, threatened his life. And he came out, and he said, "Well, of course, that does not reflect my personal view." Um, so, was that a concession or what? Was he afraid? Could he be made afraid? Was did he resign because he was afraid? People are asking that question. And they say, well, if somebody would resign an office because he was afraid of the consequences of holding it faithfully and what might happen to him, that is not a mark of sanctity. Mm-hmm. Father, what, um, what do you think about these, these labels? We keep using this term of, of conservative or, or liberal. Um, do you think there, there's much to that, or do you think it would be more effective just to use the term modernist and traditional Catholic? Because... Uh, it seems that modernism can allow for um, some level of conservatism, maybe in certain uh, in certain fields. So it doesn't even seem to be very effective um, to call someone a, a great conservative if they were at the same time a modernist. Is there anything to well, you? I guess you're right about that. You could be a conservative modernist. Yeah. Um, what, what, how would you define a conservative modernist? I suppose you could say, well... A conservative modernist, who one is one who might believe certain doctrines of the faith, but he doesn't believe them on the basis of the supernatural motive of faith, but because he finds them acceptable to himself. And so he could say, yeah, I believe in the Immaculate Conception. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in these things because I don't see any reason not to. Okay, uh, But he chooses to believe them because that's his own faith experience. That's the basis of modernism. His own faith experience tells him that this is true. But someone who says that to you, uh, well, yes, I believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament, 
whatever that means to a modernist, um, because that's my own personal faith experience. Yeah. Well, that person is a modernist. Yeah. In principle, is a modernist, even though he claims to believe in the real presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament, Catholic doctrine, he doesn't believe it as a matter of Catholic doctrine. He believes it because it is a matter of his own personal experience. So you can have a conservative modernist like that. (laughs) But a a real modernist, uh, I I won't say a real modernist, I would say a radical modernist, someone who takes the principle of modernism to their ultimate conclusions, but be like the modernist who says, okay, well, my faith experience tells me that Jesus is present in the Blessed Sacrament, transubstantiation, well, you know, we can discuss the terminology, but uh, my personal experience that he's there because I feel his presence there. But of course, that's only true for me. But those who don't have that personal experience don't believe that, and they're right too. They have true faith also. That, that reality is true for them, that Jesus is not present there in uh, the Blessed Sacrament, you know, or the Eucharist for them. Uh, so that's taking the principle of one's own personal experience as the foundation for faith to a, a next another step down the road of the practical conclusion, you know, <clears throat> until finally one says, well, there is no real supernatural faith. There's only individual faith based on each person's individual experience. This is my personal experience now, but this could change. Yeah. And I could evolve beyond that. And then I could begin to realize, well, you know, Jesus is, is in the, the, the host that I, that I consecrate <laughs> or that I receive at uh, the new mass. But Jesus is present in the grass, too, and in the clouds, you know, in the raindrops <clears throat> and in fishies and butterflies. And now I realize that Jesus is everywhere. And this is my faith experience at the moment. But again, that's evolving, that's changing as God kind of develops in me my, you know, my experience of the divine. Uh, it's an evolving thing. So you, you have modernists who may say, uh, affirm, uh, you know, some or even all of the doctrines of the catechism, but they don't affirm them as doctrine. <clears throat> they affirm them rather as a matter of their own personal faith experience. And when they no longer have that personal faith experience or it evolves beyond that, they modify it and sometimes even abandon it and go on to something else. So all religions are true in their mind insofar as they reflect someone's personal faith experience. That's that's ecumenism. That's what ecumenism is all about. And uh, by the way, Benedict was an ecumenist. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Well, um, well, Certainly pray for his soul, Father. And, That's the um, key, to pray for his soul. He's got a lot to answer for. Yes. Um, but I wanted to uh, change gears, Father. I know we wanted to um, talk about another subject. You've uh, been reading about the so-called Good Club, um, this uh, group of uh, highly secretive group of billionaires who, uh, who met in, in New York City. I know you've been doing some reading about that. Father, what have you found about the Good Club? Well, I don't think they're so good. <laughs> they think they're good, obviously. Uh, <clears throat> but the road to hell is paved with 
good intentions and those who think they have them. Um, you know who the members of a good club are, right? <clears throat> billionaires. The billionaires. Uh, Bill Gates, uh, Oprah Bill Winfrey, Gates. Soros, Bloomberg, George Soros. All, all, all those. They are the good club. You know why they're good? Yeah. Why, why are they the good club? Because they have so much money. <laughs> because they have money and they're giving it to charitable uh, yeah. causes. Yeah. And the charitable causes are their own radical political agenda, yeah. right? <laughs> and uh, actually, uh, Tom, I think what you're referring to is something that was just unearthed. It uh, was something that happened actually uh, about 13 years ago. 2009. And uh, it was written up in the press in a very mysterious way, even back then. Um, it was written up as a fact that it happened, a meeting of the billionaires, quietly summoned by Bill Gates. And they met in a private residence of a man who was a Rockefeller, Rockefeller minion. Uh, I think it was the president of Rockefeller University. Uh, they met at his residence uh, in New York, um, to discuss what they considered the primary problems facing mankind. Uh, back then, I mean, there was a recession going on, um, and there was a lot of uh, hardship. And these billionaires, who definitely were not suffering hardship, <clears throat> uh, wanted to get together and address the problems as they saw them facing mankind. They'd already set up these charitable trusts and all the rest, and through these char charitable trusts, they were, they were giving billions, they were pouring billions of dollars into these charitable trusts <clears throat> to fund and fuel these causes of theirs. Uh, causes that affect, would affect the lives of everybody in the world. Because they could, you know, because as billionaires, they can, they can uh, do things that actually affect the life of virtually everybody on the face of the earth. Uh, directing uh, the production or non-production, the flow of goods and services in the whole world. And uh, there's an article by a man named M. Dowling entitled, Gates' Secret Depopulation Meeting 13 Years Ago Exposed. Google's on to the cover-up. And uh, this actually, the original article is from Sunday Times, in London, uh, dated May 24th, 2009, as an opinion piece. May 24th, 2009, entitled Billionaire Club in Bid to Curb Overpopulation. It says, America's richest people meet to discuss ways of tackling a disastrous environmental, social, and industrial threat. Climate change, biggest threat to human health. Bill Gates funds unorthodox research by John Harlow, Los Angeles. Some of America's leading billionaires have met secretly to consider how their wealth could be used to slow the growth of the world's population and speed up improvements in health and education. The philanthropists who attended a summit convened on the initiative of Bill Gates, the Microsoft co-founder discussed joining forces to overcome political and religious obstacles to change, change 
of course, that they were going to engineer, right? <clears throat> Described by, as the good club by one insider, it included David Rockefeller, Jr., the patriarch of America's wealthiest dynasty, Warren Buffett, and George Soros, the financiers, Michael Bloomberg, the mayor of New York, and the media moguls Ted Turner and Oprah Winfrey. <clears throat> we might say with a lineup like that, how could you go wrong? Yeah. Right? Um, they have in common, they're fabulously wealthy. <clears throat> they think that they know better than anyone else, that they're somehow gifted with insight, um, special insight, and they know what's wrong with mankind, and they know how to fix it. This is what they're, the premise they're going on. <clears throat> they talk about how these members have given <clears throat> billions and billions of dollars through these charitable organizations they've set up for that purpose. These are nonprofits, by the way. They gathered at the home of Sir Paul Nurse, a British Nobel Prize biochemist and a president of the private Rockefeller University in Manhattan on May 5th. So this would have been May 5th, the year 2009, is where they met. This meeting was supposed to be secret. In fact, um, uh, these billionaires, in most cases, didn't even inform their, their, their advisors, their closest advisors. They just said that they were going to attend some kind of security briefings in New York. So this was uh, not supposed to be for publication. The fact that they were meeting, well, that wasn't necessarily something that could be kept from the press entirely. What they were meeting about, <clears throat> that was not supposed to be something uh, known and made public. Um, it says Stacy Palmer, editor of the Chronicle of Philanthropy, said the summit was unprecedented. Quote, we only learnt about it afterwards by accident. Normally, these people are happy to talk good causes, but this is different. Maybe because they don't want to be seen as a global cabal, he said. Well, in fact, they don't want to be seen as a global cabal, but it's clear that they are. I think there's no doubt about it. Some details were emerging this weekend, however. The billionaires were each given 15 minutes to present their favorite cause, over dinner, they discussed how they might settle on an umbrella cause that could harness their interests. And so they each were given 15 minutes to present what they considered the main cause. And then over dinner, the point was they should settle on an overall cause that would sort of, you know, <clears throat> umbrella cause cover the, cover the rest of them. And what was the priority? Gates's priority, population. We have to cull the human population. We have to decrease the world's population. Uh, Gates, 53, who was giving away most of his fortune, argued that healthier families freed from malaria and extreme poverty would change their habits and have fewer children within half of gener a generation. At a conference in Long Beach, California last February, that's 2009 again, he had made similar points. Official projections say the world's population will peak at 9.3 billion, up from 6.6 .6 billion today. Of course, again, that was back in 2009. But with charitable initiatives, notice, with charitable initiatives, such as better reproductive health care, you know what that means. Better reproductive health care, right? 
contraception, sterilization, abortion, what they considered reproductive health care. We think we can cap that at 8.3 billion, Gates said. This is in February 2009. Gates says, we think we can cap the world population at 8.3 billion. Who's we? Is this the pontifical we of Bill Gates? Who gives him the prerogative to decide that he should be determining what should be the cap of the population of, the, of mankind? The arrogance of these people is incredible. Patricia Stonecipher, former chief executive of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which gives more than two billion pounds a year to good causes, attended the Rockefeller Summit. She said the billionaires met to discuss how to increase giving, and they intended to continue the dialogue over the next few months. Another guest said, there was nothing as crude as a vote, but a consensus emerged that they would back a strategy in which population growth would be tackled as a potentially disastrous environmental, social, and industrial threat. There is something, this is a quote now, there is, this is something so nightmarish that everyone in this group agreed it needs big brain answers, said the guest. They need to be independent of government agencies, which are unable to head off the disaster we all see looming. Why all the secrecy? They wanted to speak rich to rich without worrying anything they said would end up in the newspapers, painting them as an alternative world government, he said. Well, this is exactly what they are. That's what they're trying to be, an alternative world government. They are a basically a, but it's seen here, a global cabal. And they are going to determine the life and death of millions and millions of people. <clears throat> um, I mean, we're talking about a difference between what they said here, but they have a peak they expected to be 9.3 billion, and Gates says, we need to set the cap at 8.3 billion. That's a billion people they're talking about. That's a difference of a billion people who should not be, because Bill Gates says they should not be, <clears throat> and his friends. Now, I ask you, uh, they have been implementing these measures, um, this good club, as they dub themselves, right? Uh, they've been implementing these measures of population control for all of this time, certainly over the last 13 years, even before that, Gates was very active in uh, health care, okay? And uh, during that time, he actually had been accumulating a, uh, a track record and uh, winning a reputation of someone who was responsible for uh, doing a lot of damage to populations, people in Africa, notably, and uh, around the world with his health care. So um, this is a man who openly gloats about reducing the population of mankind. Abortion very clearly fits into his, uh, into his scheme. Uh, when you abort a baby, you not only do away with one life, but you do away with all of the lives who could derive from that one life. 
that one person's children and that those grandchildren and their children and their children for generations. So down through the succeeding generations, you might wind up having culled, you know, hundreds if not thousands of people from the population with every abortion um, that you perform. So it's all part of this program to promote this. Of course, sterilization, birth control, all of these things. But the question arises, at what point does this simply become mass murder? At what point are these people guilty of genocide? And should somebody be standing up and accusing them of this? And when Bill Gates is gloating about how if, if these vaccines, uh, you know, perform properly, uh, you know, 750, three quarters of a million people or more, you know, will die because of this. Uh, is it a time that somebody stands up and confronts it with the fact, you know, you're a mass murderer. You're proposing genocide here. Just because you're billionaires doesn't mean you have the right to do this. You're playing with not only one person's lives, your, your life, you're playing with millions of people's lives. And you think it's okay, what is this? Are we dealing with Lenin and Stalin? Are we dealing with Hitler? Are we dealing with people who say that one person's death is a, is a tragedy, a million, a million deaths is a statistic? Is that, is that how you think? And is that how we're supposed to think? I'm sorry, we will not think that way. Uh, as far as we're concerned, uh, or if an individual would stand up and say this, then the individual would say, as far as I'm concerned, you are a mass murderer, and you should be held accountable for mass murder. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> What's the difference between that and a Stalin or a Hitler or a Pol Pot or a, a Mao Zedong who boasted about the millions who died for the glory of communism and Nazism and all the rest, <clears throat> National Socialism. So I, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's necessary to um, actually confront this good club with the, uh, well, with the facts, with reality, and uh, uh, not simply cede to them some kind of moral high ground because they claim they have the best interest of mankind involved uh, to be achieved by the deaths of millions of people. Mm -hmm. I think they need to be held accountable. And those who aid and abet them in government, in industry, commerce, anybody who aids and abets them in their nefarious program, I think it needs to be held held accountable. Um, you might say, "Well, how can we do that?" You know, because they're the billionaires; they are the ones who bought off the politicians. They're the ones who are, are um, funding, you know, communism throughout the world and profiting it from it at the same time. Um, well, that doesn't change the fact that what they're doing is very evil. And uh, it needs to be exposed and denounced. Yeah. And mentioning their audacity, Father, there was um, an article that we came across that um, was talking about how, how these billionaires, many of the, the, same, the same characters involved, have, um, have set about seeking a, a cure for old age, as they mm -hmm. call it. And um, they are um, apparently investing all these billions and billions of dollars in all of these startup companies seeking a cure for, for, for some, some kind of anti-aging uh, medication or vaccine or whatever it may be that, that will come about. So not only are they, um, you know, at the, at the same time that they are, are 
devaluing life and um, you know trying to, to to smash the population at the same time they're essentially trying to, to seek immortality for themselves or, or something so the arrogance is just well there you are Tim. well there are those who are actually suggesting and they have reason they have reason to do so that they're experimenting on the rest of us for their own benefit yeah. so that they can uh, they're concerned about their old age they're concerned about recapturing their youth and that the rest of us are guinea pigs in their massive experiments to testing out vaccines mri mrna uh, technology and, 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 and all the rest of these things for the sake of finding a way to perpetuate their own lives, uh, digitize their own lives and give themselves a kind of immortality. Yeah. They want to be the kind of the, the, the new gods of the new Olympus. Um, and we exist uh, to help them to achieve that divine status. Yeah. Um, you've heard of adrenochrome. Adrenochrome... Yes. Uh, taking of blood from children, especially children who are terrified, releasing adrenal, adrenal, the adrenal gland releasing adrenaline into the blood, the blood then having a high concentration of adrenaline supposedly is like the fountain of youth. You know? Now, again, fact checkers will say, oh, there's nothing to this, this is, this is ridiculous, um, uh, and, and holding this up you know, saying that the rich and famous are are trying to get a hold of this blood for the sake of their own youthfulness, and uh, that's a witch hunt. Well, I admit there are witch hunts, uh, but it's the witches who are doing the hunting now, you know, uh, going after those who would actually expose the evil involved here. I don't know the chemical, uh, you know, the chemistry of adrenal, uh, adrenochrome. I don't know, obviously. Um... And I couldn't really tell you whether there's anything to it or not. Um, but what you're, say, what you're saying is, is a matter of fact, though, that they are researching how to produce a fountain of youth for themselves. And in the process of researching, they are experimenting. And they're experimenting, experimenting on other people. That's, that's what they have to do. You know, um, you mentioned also uh, New York coming out of Hochul, what's her name? Uh, Catherine Hochul, is that her name? Uh, the appointed mayor of New York, appointed to succeed uh, uh, Andrew Cuomo, right? Mm -hmm. She's part of his administration, so she's supposed to reform that administration. Uh, I don't see that. Uh, but um, she um, is as liberal and as leftist as, you know, one can be. Um, but she, she has approved, I guess, uh, human composting. Mm. Now, the, I guess there are half a dozen states in the United States of America that have already approved that. Human bodies being turned into compost and fertilizer. And again, you know, this is totally contrary to Catholic teaching on the, the sanctity of the body, that God created us body and soul, and we are, in fact, you might say a fusion of both body and soul. By nature, we are body and soul united substantially and essentially. Um, and the the idea of the body being just sort of, um, well, after death, just like garbage, you know, uh, that's a pagan idea. That's a completely pagan idea. And that's why cremation was often the way of disposing of a body, right? Just reducing it to ashes and then scattering it, uh, disposing of it. 
there were even cults that considered the body as evil because of its materiality. And only the destruction of the body could free the spirit. Um, the Catholic Church has always condemned cremation, only with the Novus Ordo, only with the New Order after Vatican II, was cremation tolerated. If you look at the Code of Canon Law before Vatican II, you see that no Catholic could have anything to do with a cremation. Uh, that if any Catholic, uh, uh, you know, sought to have his body cremated after death, he would be excluded Catholic burial. He wouldn't have a, a tradition. He wouldn't have a mass, a funeral mass. He wouldn't be able to be buried in a Catholic cemetery. Um, that all changed after Vatican II, of course, because the pagan practices began to come in, and we see how they have come in with Francis now, even to the point that the the abomination of desolation is in the very sanctuary now. Uh, the earth goddess, uh, Pachamama. But it started somewhere, and cremation was one of those beginnings. A concession to pagan practice. Uh, ultimately, it destroys the concept of any concept of the sanctity of the body. The resurrection, uh, the Catholic practice of burying the body was always a great testimony to the belief in the resurrection. And the body is not simply to be taken out curbside, to be taken away by the sanitary engineers on Tuesday morning in every week and thrown in the landfill or whatever else. Um, uh, the cemeteries were a place of rest and people would go there and they would pray for their loved, loved ones and there would be memorials memorialized there. And their remains would be, would be held as, you know, uh, sacred, treated with uh, great respect, certainly the bodies of saints. Um, those who are baptized, all the more so. Those who have been anointed uh, with the holy oils, all the more so. You know, the reason of the sanctity is there. And uh, this has always been a bedrock teaching of the church, which, is, which has upheld this teaching uh, through centuries and centuries. Uh, at good, good times and bad, the church has never wavered in this. Until Vatican II and the Novus Ordo. So now it's come to the point where, well, let's just recycle our relatives' bodies, uh, you know, chip, put them to the chipper um, and reduce them to fertilizer. Um, so um, it's, it's, a, it's a very evil thing. And it's only possible because of the Novus Ordo and Vatican II. Uh, Hochul herself is a Novus Ordo Vatican II. Uh, but unquote Catholics, so uh, as is Biden, as was Cuomo, and some of the, all the rest of them, uh, making a mockery of the Catholic faith. So anyway, the, the Catholic Church's teaching about how the body is to be treated is very, very clear. If one goes back and historically uh, sees the, the Church's treatment of the body, one sees a great respect for the body, which, which uh, is kind of a reflection of the church's respect for the soul. And uh, that the treatment of the body is, in a sense, a, a guarantee uh, and emblematic of the church's belief in and regard for the soul. Um, that, unfortunately, in the Novus Ordo is being lost, even repudiated. You know, uh, you know we're, at, we're at a time... Um, when we commemorate the fact that God became man, that the Son of God actually became man and took a 
human soul and a human body. And, uh, and yet, the church is very careful in her use of the terminology regarding our Lord, regarding the incarnation of the Son of God. The church refers to our Lord not as a human being. The church does not, will not, in her theology, refer to our Lord Jesus Christ, God made man, as a human being. He does have human nature, he has a body and soul, but when we talk about the being, it's a divine, there's a, the divine being. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is the divine being of the Son of God. If they were to talk about a separate human being there, they would be talking about a separate human person beside the divine person who is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, made man. There is no separate human, human being or human person in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not like Satan who can simply try to take possession of an existing human being. That's not the case with the Incarnation. With the Incarnation, the human nature of our Lord was created for him, such that the Son of God would have that human nature with a human soul and a human body, but that human soul and human body would belong to a divine person, not just a separate human person who would somehow be connected with God, uh, with the Son of God. No. So much did God the Son become man that you have the human soul and human body, which is the human body and the human soul of an actual divine person. And uh, this was an error that Nestorius denied, right? Who wanted to degrade the motherhood of Mary, the Blessed Mother, by saying she's the mother of Jesus as a human. But the implication was, at least, that Mary actually brought into existence a separate human being um, as a separate human person, who in a sense is possessed or somehow united with that divine being and divine person of the Son of God. The Church fought that, you know that, early on against the Nestorian heresy. Why? Because the Church is very careful in what she says and very insistent that the Son of God really did become man and that there is that divine person whom we have uh, lying in the manger, hanging on the cross, and here in the Blessed Sacrament, in the altar, in the tabernacle. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we see the Catholic Church throughout all these centuries holding so firmly to the faith and being so carefully expressing that faith so clearly. And now we come to the era of modernism, which wants to destroy all of that, even to the point where Francis says of just doing away with dogma itself. Well, our job as Catholics, our role, our purpose, our vocation, is to hold the faith. That's what St. Paul said, right? Even in the time of the Antichrist, hold fast, he says. Hold fast to the faith. And that's exactly what we have to do now. Let's do it. Bye. Thank you. God bless you.
Well, Tom, God bless you too. Yep. Take care. Thank you to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.